Okay, thank you so much. Okay, if you've got a Bible, we're going to turn to Luke 12. And we're going to read the end of Luke 12 and the start of Luke 13. And so it's going to come up on the screen. We're going to read from verse 49 of Luke 12. And um, we used to do, uh, with our kids, every Saturday night we used to do family night. We still do try and do this occasionally with our, our, the two that are with us. Uh, but most kind of Saturday nights, we would often we would watch a film together. And, you know, when your kids are really little, you're kind of, you know, you're trying to go, let's, we're going to go, you know, we've got to find a film which isn't going to scare them too much. We've got to find the right kind of rating and certificate. And, well, I don't know what certificate you would put on this passage we're about to read, but it's more of a 1518 than a PG, okay? Because Jesus says some stuff which is just, just pretty fiery. And one of, the, one of the challenging things when you're preaching, but one of the great things is when you go through a book, it's like, well, there it is. We could, we could try and dodge it, or we can go, well, it's here. Jesus is clearly saying the things we need to hear. So we're not dodging it. We're going to try and bite it off. Uh, this is not a passage you would normally hear preached on. It's not one that I would necessarily choose, but here it is. And um, so here we go. Here's what he says. I have come, Jesus says, to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it you don't know how to interpret this present time? And then we're going to jump to the start of chapter 13. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered... Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Of the 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went out to look for fruit on it, but it did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up all the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now when you um, preach somewhere or when you share your faith or if you've ever been on an alpha course or you run an alpha course or if you plant a church as we're all doing together generally speaking you oft, you want to speak about the good news of the gospel okay and i actually think this passage is about good news but you want to kind of you want people to go out thinking oh, i'd like to come back yeah I, well, it just just feels like good news i didn't realize jesus was such an attractive figure he's offering and and you want to preach those messages but every so often you hear passages like this you're like whoa because this is when Jesus is like, he's just bringing, hey, look, folks, this is really serious stuff. This is life and death stuff. This matters kind of stuff. And it's easier, like I said, to bypass it. But really, we've got to look at it. We've got to go, what is he saying? What do we need to understand about the gospel that sometimes we want to just drift past? 
And when you read a passage like this, I would really encourage you, if you ever read, you know, get to your Bible and you kind of go, I don't know what to do with this. It's not just to come up with your own thoughts. That's the moment where you kind of go to commentaries, you read books, you read scholars, you go, well, what do they say? I've been really helped by some stuff I have read this week, okay? And some messages, particularly by people like John Piper or some Tim Keller messages I've heard on these passages. So a lot of the stuff that I've learnt over the years is really from other people. All of it is from other people. So we're going to jump in, we're going to pull some things out. There's lots more things we could draw out, okay? But I want to talk about, first of all, what you see in this passage is the divisiveness of Jesus or the divisiveness of the gospel. The gospel is good news. Jesus is radically inclusive, okay? That's the much nicer side of the gospel to preach on. Yeah, and we see this. We've seen it as we go through Luke. We've seen it before. He keeps saying things like, come to me if you're thirsty or if you're weary, come to me. He keeps telling stories about people who are supposed to be enemies and he keeps putting them in the place of a hero. Yeah, the Samaritans are supposed to be enemies and Jesus keeps telling stories where he makes them the heroes in the story because he's saying people who are considered outside are allowed in now. So he kind of... So he's kind of changing the paradigm about who's allowed in and who does God accept and what basis does he accept them. So he keeps changing all these things. He eats with, speaks to, touches, heals people who should never have been associated with because he is utterly inclusive and he throws open the doors of the kingdom. That's what Jesus does when he comes. He's the kingdom bringer. He's not just the kingdom herald. He's the kingdom bringer. And he's going, actually, you want to, I want to redefine who God's kingdom is for and who's allowed it. And yet, at the same time, Jesus is utterly exclusive. He is the most inclusive person you would ever meet with the most radically inclusive message. And yet, the way by which you come to God and come back to God, he says, is completely exclusive. It's open to anyone, but he says, you only come through me. So he tells other stories, doesn't he? He says, you know, the kingdom of God is like someone who finds a great pearl. And it's like, it's worth more than anything. But to have that pearl, he sells everything to have it. Or there's a treasure buried in a field. If you want it, you've got to buy the whole field. You can't have oh, a bit of Jesus and a bit of my own ideas or a bit of Jesus and a bit of another. It's a, no, no, no. It's radically exclusive. He makes statements like this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me he's like there is no other doorway you can't come via this route or that route you have to come through me it's radically exclusive it's completely inclusive anyone can come but if you want to come you've got to come to me or he says he asks questions he says well peter who do you say i am in other words everything rises or falls on who you say jesus is if you think he's just a good man with a bunch of nice stuff he says you don't know me at all in fact, he says, uh, it's some scary stuff, you know, he says, didn't, you know, one day there'll be people say, well, didn't we prophesy in your name? And they'll say, I never knew you. Just think, whoa, how does that work? So he is both radically inclusive and radically exclusive. And because of that, Jesus is divisive. And that is what he's talking about in this passage. He's saying, I have come to bring division. In other words, this message my presence in this place, my kingdom will divide people. Right? We, don't, we don't like that. That's difficult. We find that hard. I find that hard. But that's what happens. Families divide. Some of us have experienced that, haven't we, in our own lives. We've, we've come to a point of following Jesus and our families have divided over it. 
You know, you may have experienced that. I certainly know people whose families have disowned them because they've made a choice to follow Jesus. Families divide. Friends leave. People walk away. Jesus had this himself. He calls fishermen to leave everything and follow. And they follow. And then he speaks to a rich young ruler who's been godly all his life and says, well, what do I do to inherit? And he says, well, you've got to sell everything and give to the poor. And he walks away sad. He can't do it. It's, it's, it's dividing people. In John 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I think we, we had that mentioned in the worship. I'm the very stuff of life. I'm the very essence of life. You can't feed yourselves elsewhere. You can try, but you will find no satisfaction. I am the bread of You have to come to me. And then he goes on and says, you have to drink my blood, eat my flesh, which is obviously a reference to his death and resurrection, to communion, but also it's a reference to, you have to feed your life on me. Exclusive. And it says, following that, a whole load of disciples left. They were disciples and they leave and they go, this is just too hard. He's asking too much. Jesus is, he is being too, is, he's being too much. He's asking too much. His statements about himself are too much. I cannot give this to him. And, but Jesus is going, you have to give everything. And then interestingly, he turns to Peter and the disciples and he says, do you not want to leave as well? You going? And Jesus, Peter says these words, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe. I love that. It's like it's like been a journey for him. He's come to a point. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One. In other words, Peter's going, Jesus, you're asking a lot, but you're worth more than everything. Right? You think, Jesus, you're asking a lot. I have to like, surrender everything. Yeah, but it's not a lot if you think actually you're going to gain more than everything. Right? If he is who he says he is, if he is, then he, you have two choices. Either you think he's nuts, he's crazy, he's a narcissist. He's, either you think like that or you think, no, no, he's everything he says he is. In which case, he deserves everything I've got. I am not going to compromise. I'm not going to keep this part of my life to me. I'm not going to decide my bit on when it comes to my money or my sexuality. I'm just, no, no, no. I've got to bring everything because he's worth more than everything. So Jesus is radically inclusive, but radically exclusive. And therefore he is divisive. But then he goes on because that's not only where the challenge ends. He carries on. And then he says, he says, well, right at the start of that passage, he says this, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. And we read those words, you kind of go, yeah, that's not like, I don't tend to put that in people's Christmas cards, you know, <laughs> you know, dear Bill, happy Christmas, you know, Luke 12, 49, I've come to bring fire on the earth. It's not a verse we want to, you know, it's like, whoa, like that is, what is he saying? Well, I think it's pretty clear what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge the world. So I'm the saviour of the world, but I'm going, to, I'm going to come and judge the world. I will bring judgment on the world. And we live in a culture, again, different cultures around the world will experience this differently, but in the West, in the culture that we are living in right now, certainly where I've come from, but very similar, we hate this aspect of the gospel. Tim Keller wrote a book once called The Center Church, and he talks about it. In any culture, there are A and B doctrines. A doctrines are the ones that people in culture love. 
They're happy to affirm that God is merciful and kind. They like the idea of tolerance and kindness. And we like, yeah, we agree. The Bible talks about that. But then there are other things that he says are B doctrines. In other words, they are the doctrines that people hate. And they will be different for different parts of the world. But the idea of judgment, that God could judge me, we hate that in the secular West. How can God judge me? Who does God think he is to judge me? It's, we hate that idea. It's awful. But what's interesting, though, in the culture we live in as well, is that we love the idea of justice. Right? And, and absolutely rightly so. It's a biblical thing. Justice. We hate the idea of judgment, but we love the idea of justice. I hate the idea that God could judge me. How does he, who does God think he is to judge me? And yet we love the idea of justice. We want justice. There should be justice. There should be justice for the dictator, for the trafficker of women and children. There should be justice for the rich CEO who, who dodges on his taxes, who's growing fat off other people and not paying. There should be justice. Everybody goes, yes, absolutely. But here's the thing, right? Ultimately, there is no justice without any judgment. Ultimately, there's no justice unless someone goes, that's enough. That person needs to be brought to account. And if God is ultimately loving, absolutely loving, then how can he not also bring justice? And if he's going to bring justice, he must bring judgment. If God is good, how can he not bring to account evildoers, people traffickers, abusers, dictators? How can he not? If God is loving, surely he has to bring them to account. Right? So we hate the idea of personal judgment, but we all affirm there must be justice. Because if God is loving, he must bring justice to people who are evil. Becky Pivot wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons, and she touches on this issue. And she says this Think about, should come up hopefully, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions. Or relationships do we respond with benign tolerance as might we might towards strangers far from it anger isn't the opposite of love hate is and the final form of hate is indifference God's wrath is not a cranky explosion but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being you think about, for those of us who are fortunate enough to have kids, you think about when do we have to kind of like speak to our kids and bring some discipline to our kids and tell them to say no or there's a, some consequence. We do that not out of hate. We do that out of love because we care about who they're growing into being. If we don't love our kids, we'll just be indifferent to them. Do whatever you like. I don't care. But actually, the product of our discipline is because we love them. We care about them. God's justice is a product of his love, in other words. Surely if God is a God of love, then he must be a God of justice. It would be appalling to us if God does not bring to account people who do evil. So what we discover is we love justice, but we just don't want to be included in the judgment thing. Don't put me in the bracket of judgment. Judge them, just you can't judge me. And that's when you read the next story. 
because Luke then goes into chapter 13 and then he tells this really quite unusual story where Jesus is with the crowds and clearly they are raising a question to him and they, they, they talk to him, they raise with him two tragedies that all the crowds are aware of. Clearly they were, one of them is where a whole bunch of Galileans have been murdered in the temple. They've been murdered and, and, and he, they raise this question. Well, what about them? Did, were they, did they suffer because basically they are, because of their sin? It's, it's God, was God judging them? And then they raise the question about, there's another, there's a natural disaster where the tower falls over and it crushes people. And they get a question, well, what about them? Did they, did they suffer? Has suffering come into their life because they were sinful and bad? Has judgment come to them because of their sin? And it's interesting because you see the same question, say, in other parts of the Bible. So Job, if you know the story of Job, what's the question? What's the question? His friends say to him, you are suffering. Why? Well, you clearly have done something wrong. The bad stuff in your life, Job, is because you've sinned. And that's why God is judging you. And Jesus says to them here, and God says in the Old Testament to Job, absolutely not. The suffering that they have experienced and the suffering Job experienced has nothing to do with their sinfulness. It's all to do with the fact we live in a broken, sinful world where bad things happen even to good people. So they say, is that because God is judging them? And Jesus goes, no, it's not true. You can see it in the text. Jesus goes twice. He goes, no. Do you really think they're suffering because they're sinful? And Jesus says, no. But then he says this, repent twice. He says, repent unless you too will all perish. So he goes, no, 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 they're not suffering because they're sinful. Right. But then he says, all of you, me included, all of you need to repent, otherwise you'll suffer as well. What is he saying? Why is he saying that? Well, Jesus is saying it because he knows the flip side of the belief that people are suffering because they're sinful. The flip side is, I'm not suffering because I'm pretty good. Right? I'm, I'm in a good place. Things, good things are happening to me because I'm doing quite well. So God must be blessing me, Right? Whereas those people, clearly some bad stuff happened, maybe because they've sinned, maybe some bad stuff's coming. Now, there are moments in the Bible where you think, well, maybe there were judgment there. But generally speaking, God is withholding judgment until the day when he returns to justice. That's why Jesus doesn't read all of that Isaiah in, you know, about the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He doesn't declare the day of judgment. He declares the day of jubilee. He says there's going to be delay of judgment, but judgment will come. What is Jesus getting at? What he's getting at is this. We tend to console ourselves by comparing ourselves. We go, well, I'm not as bad as those people. Yeah? And you, you, know, you talk to people in the world, they'll go, yeah, but I, I'm not a bad person. Look, I'm not, I'm not Adolf Hitler. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not a bad person. So clearly, you know, I don't deserve that. The fundamental problem with that issue is we tend to think of sin as a quantity issue. It's the amount of sin. So we, we kind of compare. But actually sin is not a quantity issue. It is a quality issue. And the quality of our lives and our hearts is that all of us are broken. All of us fall short. All of us. So Jesus is saying, those people did not die because they were judged. But neither are they innocent. And neither are we. And neither are you. 
I have come, he says, to bring fire on the earth. Which means his intention is to burn up all the pain, all the brokenness, all the evil, all the injustice. He said, I'm going to come and I'm going to make everything new. Tim Keller, when he talks about this passage, talks about fire purifies. It does. Purifies metal. Fire is coming to purify. And the justice desire in our heart cries out. There must be a purification. There must be justice for those acts. The problem is we fit under that as well. And Jesus said, I'm coming to bring fire. And everybody is guilty. And that is why he says, so you two need to repent. All of us sit under judgment. And Jesus goes, but there is a doorway out. And the gift in the doorway is called repentance. And notice he's speaking to people who are thinking like their lives are in a pretty good place because they haven't fallen under a tower. And he says, no, no, no. All of you need to repent. Turn away. Confess your sins. And it's interesting for me as I reflect on this, I think... In the church tradition I've grown up, the idea of repentance is something that is rarely spoken about. In other church traditions, it's something they do every week. There's a confession. That's what Jesus says when you pray the Lord's Prayer. You know, forgive me. It's, it's, it's like a constant, God, I want to line back up. I want to get clear. I want to get in line with you. I don't want to stray. I want to come back. Repentance is a gift to us. It's not a punishment. Repentance is a gift to us to get our hearts back in the right place. We think, oh gosh, it's like sitting on the naughty step. Didn't anybody do that with their kids? Go and sit on the stairs. You can have a little time out. It's like the naughty. Repentance is not the naughty step for Christians. Repentance is, I'm going to come and do surgery in your heart and I'm going to get you right with me again. It's a gift to come home. And Jesus says, don't think you're any better. And repentance is the doorway to getting back. Now, obviously, if you're a Christian, we know there has been a moment of repentance to come to Jesus where we're covered. But also repentance is an ongoing thing where we keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back just to get our lives lined up so we don't quench the spirit in our hearts. So he says, repent, turn away, confess your sins, draw near to God so that you too will not perish. When the people of Israel were in Egypt and God calls Moses to get them out of Egypt, you'll, if you know those stories, you'll know that God, through Moses, sends a number of plagues to get them out, to get Pharaoh to allow them to go. Right? And Pharaoh keeps going, well, you can go, and then he changes his mind. You can, he changes his mind okay? And then it gets to a point where he says, okay, Moses, tell Pharaoh that I'm going to kill the firstborn animal and, of every, and also person of every household in Egypt. But tell my people to get a spotless one-year-old lamb, slaughter it, take the blood, put it over the doorframe of the house. So that when the angel of death passes over and brings judgment, where the mark of the blood is of the lamb, they will pass over and there will be no judgment and no fire and no death on that household. And obviously, that is looking forward to the ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus, who is to come, who says, if you, will, if you will come under me, come to me, come through me, if you will allow the blood to cover you, 
the mark of the blood, there will be no judgment for you. So Jesus goes on to say, I've come to bring fire, but before I bring fire, I must go through my own baptism. That is not a reference to his water baptism. He's already been baptised. Okay? It is a reference to his death. He's saying that I myself must go through a baptism of what? Of fire, in other words. Before I bring fire, before I judge the world, I have to walk through fire myself. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, before I judge the world, all the fire, all the wrath, which is stored up for brokenness, evilness, and sin, he says, is going to be poured out on me. All that fire is going to come to me. What was never his to take, he takes. Why? So that you and I, the mark of the blood, can cover not our doorposts but our lives so that when judgment comes one day, you are covered. You are covered with the mark of the blood of the Lamb because fire came on him and not on you. How do you get that? Jesus says, you need to repent. You need to come home. You need to turn away. You need to take it seriously. You need to bring those bits of your lives that you're ashamed of and go, oh God, I'm, I just need to repent. I, I've, just, I've allowed this to become just part of my life and I know it's not of you. I know it's not, I know I'm compromising here or I just need to get straight. I need to, how, I need to live under the blood of the lamb because Jesus says one day I'm going to judge the earth but the, the way to get home, to be safe, to be under the blood, is to repent. Because the fire that was yours and was mine has been poured out on him. We're going to, in these next few weeks, we're going to talk about Advent. We're going to talk about Jesus' is like, it's the message of hope, isn't he? That the Christmas message is a message of joy and that he is the Prince of Peace. You know? And then you read a passage like this. You think, you're the Prince of Peace. But he is, because actually we deserve fire. And yet he says, if you'll turn to me, you get to come home. And then you get to know peace. You get to know hope. You get to experience joy. Repentance is a gift. John three sixteen, which is possibly the most famous verse in the whole Bible, I think. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The threat of perishing is gone because of the possibility of repentance because the fire was poured out on him. He had to go through his baptism of fire so that you and I don't have to. Praise God. <laughs> so I know in this kind of church we love to focus on all the things which are just immediately happy and <coughs> joyful and all those things and I, I'm a believer but you read passages like this you think God I just need to have a sober heart before you <coughs> okay so in a moment we're going we're gonna to take communion together but before we do I just want to give you a moment just between you and him and Sarah, maybe you can come up in a moment. Would that be okay? But I just want to give you a moment. And it will be 
silence, I think, because it's like, okay, God, where are the areas that you just want me to get clear, to get free, to not live in the grayness or the muck anymore? Where are you saying, no, no, come on, come on, that's not for you. So I'm going to just give you a minute or two, and then we're going to take communion together. But I want to, I want to encourage you to get your hearts right before him, and I'm going to do the same thing as well. So.